morning, guys. Um, my name's Kathleen. I'm one of the deacons. Uh, and I also help out with the youth group. And just like last year, the youth group has offered to uh, open the church downstairs for just contemplation and prayer throughout the day on Good Friday. We're going 9 to 5. 9 to 5, just like Dolly Parton. Um, <laughs> and uh, they are also working on special stations for prayer and contemplation, contemplation throughout uh, the fellowship hall downstairs. So that'll be set up. Um, and at noon on Friday, this is Good Friday, not this coming, but Good Friday, April 7th, uh, Cindy will be hosting a special Passover demonstration. So if you want to come to that, you're also welcome to come to that. Um, the youth will be there too. So yeah, join us. Can't wait. Yes, so thanks, Ron. So that is all happening downstairs, but the sanctuary itself up here will be open for anybody that wants to just come in and pray throughout the day, too. Thank you, everybody. All right, let's um, quiet our hearts and come into a time of prayer and worship. Lord God, we thank you that we can come together and worship you, get to know you better, get to know your people better. We pray that this time will be a time of joy and anticipation and hope and love. And so we pray the prayer that your son Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning again, you guys. You're so friendly. Good job. Um, so we have two scripture passages for today. If you see a red uh, Bible near you, uh, the first passage is going to be on page 202, and the second passage is going to be on page 392. So feel free to follow along in the Red Pew Bible, or it'll also be up on the screen for us. The first one is going to be 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and then I will jump over to Psalm 23 after that. Yes. <laughs> All right, 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? 
If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before, here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. Samuel went to Ramah. Now Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How's everybody today? A little chilly this morning. <laughs> Who knows what this is? A can of corn. That's what it says, right? It says whole kernel sweet corn. So what does corn look like? How do we know that this is a can of corn? Popcorn? Yeah. Well, this isn't the kind that you pop. But how do we know that this is a can of corn? Well, it, it, it says it. It has a picture on it. Hmm? It's yellow. <laughs> we, yeah, corn is yellow. So we should be able to tell that this is corn, right? But do we really know that this is corn? Sometimes it's white. 
Well, let's find out. I brought my handy dandy. If you don't have one of these or one like it, you need to get one of the best. Just because I'm sloppy, I'm going to set it in here. These are the best can openers in the world. I have trouble. I can never get the other kind to work right, but this is just amazing. I can set this and go over and do something else. It's awesome. I should do a commercial for it, but that's not the message. <laughs> okay, come on. No, it does work. It does work. Sometimes it just needs a little help. Well, we'll try it again. <laughs> now, they really do work. They're really good. Anyway, um, the only way to find out if this is indeed a can of corn is to open it. And so that's what we're trying to do. When I was looking at the scriptures and thinking about the whole seeing and understanding and why David's brothers were all passed over and he was the one that was chosen, um, Samuel and God saw something that we didn't see. There we go. Okay, I've got it open. So what's it supposed to look like? Yellow. Beets. You don't trust me. <laughs> well, maybe we shouldn't trust Green Giant, because that's what it says on here. Green Giant. No corn in this can. Um, it reminds me about how we look at the outside of things and make a judgment about what's inside. Um, everybody assumed that David's older brothers were going to be the one that was chosen. But God doesn't look at what we look like on the outside. He looks at what's inside. He looks at our hearts. And... Beets kind of remind me of the heart. That's why I chose beets and not carrots or peas. Um, this really has a can of label underneath that says beets, but I covered it up. Because sometimes we do that. We cover things up and we pretend that they're different than what they are. If I said, I really wanted corn, and I put the corn label on here, does that make it corn inside? No, it's still beets inside. And if we put on a face and say, I'm a Christian, but we're still doing all these terrible, awful things all the time. Does that make us a Christian? No. And sometimes we need to see through those faces that other people put on that say, I'm a bad kid. I'm, I'm, I, but they're really not. They really have a good heart. And I have several students that are like that. They, 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 they're all noise. But inside, there's a really good heart. And I think that the combination of our scriptures today is asking us to not just look at what things look like on the outside, but to look on the inside. And to do that best, we need to use the eyes that are in our heart. These eyes trick us. We see things the way we want to see them, the way other people want us to see them. But when we look with our heart, we see them the way God wants us to see them. And I think that is the key. Um, I, I know that I bore you with my school stories, but not too long ago, my, 
one class, my honors kids, read Oedipus. I don't know if you're familiar with that Greek play. Um, you probably all heard of the Oedipus Complex, where every boy wants to kill his dad and marry his mom. Well, that's not really the case in this story. But Oedipus is blind. He, he, he can see. He has eyes. But he can't see. And Tiresias is a blind prophet who has no eyes. He can't see. But he can see the truth. And that, I think, is we need to be like Tiresias. Even not to trust our eyes, but to trust what we know in our hearts. And we need to be like God and look with the eyes of our heart and see the beauty in everyone. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have given us eyes to see, both physical eyes and eyes in our heart. Help us to use our eyes to see the things that you want us to see, the needs that you want us to deal with, the beauty that you want us to see in each other. We thank you for vision, and we thank you for Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you to look into your word, and we ask that you will help us to see things the way that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you know that um, it took a really long time in my life to meet Paul and get married, and so for about 10 years before we met, and I think how we met, um, I <laughs> did some on and off online dating. Listen, this is not fun, guys. <laughs> and I suspect it's even less fun now. Um, I have not been in that scene for 12 years, I am happy to say. But anyway, one of the things that I learned, because I did learn a lot of things in this experience, one of the things that I learned is that when somebody puts in their profile what you see is what you get, that's probably not true. <laughs> There's probably all kinds of stuff going on they might not even be aware of. They might think that what you see is what you get, but there's, some, there's all kinds of crazy nonsense that, um, that you end up finding out later. And so I stopped. Every time I would see that, that would be a red flag to me. I'd be like, nope, <laughs> next. So some of us are better at reading people than others. Some of us are better at knowing ourselves than others. Um, but even those of us who are naturally good at it and have even developed that skill through experience sometimes get it wrong. Sometimes when we get it wrong, we get it extra wrong because we're so used to being able to read people well that um, if we're not, uh, we, yeah, we make all kinds of assumptions. Anyway. If we're going to learn to think like Jesus thinks, which we talked about a few weeks ago, we also have to need, we also need to learn to start trying to see like God sees. Because only God can truly see all the way past the surface. All the way past all the surfaces. People are complicated. We have lots of layers. God can see past all of those to the actual heart. Only God knows the full nature 
of all reality. So, if we're going to learn to think like Jesus thinks, and we're going to learn to see like God sees, it means that we are going to have to check in with God regularly, because even if we are his people, even if we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and we are becoming more like Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit living, living in us, we're still limited, and so we cannot, by nature, see everything that God sees. This process of learning to expand our vision to see things more clearly the way that God does takes a lifetime. And, in a weird way, it's kind of encouraging to know that even somebody like Samuel, who the Bible calls a seer, didn't always see things clearly. In fact, it seems like on his own, Samuel in the Old Testament was not that great a judge of character. He had to check in with God all the time to make sure that he got it right. God actually started speaking to Samuel through an actual voice. Most of us don't get that, even if we believe that we hear from God. A lot of us don't hear with our ears. But Samuel actually heard God speaking to him when he was eight years old, approximately. You can read that story in 1 Samuel 3. Um, and so not only could he hear God, but he also, he's known in some of the stories, especially the stories about King Saul, where he interacts with King Saul, he is called a seer. And so he is able to see things that other people can't see. What he sees is stuff that God shows to him. And most of the time in Samuel's case, it was things that God showed Samuel that God had in mind for his people. So God had something that he needed to show his people, and so he would do it through Samuel. But by himself, Samuel couldn't see anything extra special. It was not his natural ability that enabled him to do this. It was only when God showed it to him. And here's an example of how we know this. Um, at the end of, near the end of Samuel's life, the people of Israel, who he had been kind of, he was the final, what they called a judge, the book of Judges. Samuel's not in it, but he's the last one. His story comes right after all those stories that happen in that very crazy book of the Bible. Um, and so he judged the people justly and well, and he listened to God, and he helped them get on track when they got off track. But then, at the end of his life, his sons were not actually following in his footsteps very well, and so the people said, look, dude, you're getting close to dying. I mean, you're old, and we don't want your sons in charge. So we think that we need to have a king now. <clears throat> and <clears throat> we want, this is important, <clears throat> excuse me, we want a king like all the other nations have. Well, Samuel got personally offended. He thought they were rejecting him and his leadership, and probably also, he probably felt some complicated feelings about the fact that his sons weren't following in his footsteps, and they, and they really weren't a good choice to succeed him. But God had to show him, listen, they're not rejecting you, actually. They are rejecting me. I'm their king. They're rejecting me. We need to understand a little bit about kingship in the ancient Near East. When, um, 
there was a belief in the ancient Near East, even among the Hebrew peoples to an extent, that God was, well, the Hebrew peoples believed in the, the one true God. God was God. God is uncreated. God is the only real God. But there are other powerful divine beings who are part of God's divine council. And because of sin and because some of these divine beings rebelled against God, God put different spiritual entities in charge of different nations. And so when you look at ancient history in this part of the world and you see like the pharaohs, we know that the ancient Egyptians believed that the pharaoh was a god. And many, many other ancient cultures believed this too. And in a sense, they were sort of right. The king of these countries was representing, in a different way than priests do this, was representing the god of that nation, the chief god, the main god, to the people. And there was usually some actual connection with that spiritual being and the human person who was in charge. So, for example, when God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, he's not just, his, the plagues that he sends to Egypt are not just um, a bad time for the Egyptians, although they are really a bad time for the Egyptians, but they are directly, and God says this in Exodus, they are directly a battle against the gods of Egypt. So, when the Hebrew people say, we want a king like the other nations, they are rejecting the one true God because they're saying, we want a guy who can represent, who can be, basically be the human form of some God to keep us in line. Because the whole book of Judges is how they did not stay in line very well. Um, Israel itself as a nation, was supposed to be the human representation of God to the world, like he promised to Abraham. But, but God, our God, the real God, is not controlling. Um, he is not like an evil spirit who wants to control a human being or a group of human beings. God wants us to be able to choose freely to follow him, to serve him, to learn to live like him. And the people that he had chosen were not doing a great job at this. And on some level, I think they knew this. And so they're basically saying, can you please give us a king who can keep us in line better than the one that we can't see, this God up there. So to Samuel, it looked like they were rejecting him, but God can see behind the scenes. They are really rejecting God in favor of a lesser deity, and they're kind of rejecting their responsibility and role in the world. They're looking for, you know, take this pressure off us. We don't really want to represent this God that's above all other gods. We want one point person that we can turn to for help, and that guy can take all the credit and all the blame. And God because God is gracious, and because he doesn't, he's not controlling, he says, all right, we'll give you a king. Not exactly like the other nations, but you need to know that this is not going to solve all your problems. We'll, put, we'll set up this form of government that you're asking for, that all the other nations have. Um, he's, still, he's not saying, I get rid of you guys. He's still going to be their god, but he's going to work through this human construct of a king, and 
he says, just know that you're going to get taxed. The king is going to conscript your sons for his army. Your daughters are going to become slaves or part of a harem or, you know, just, just be aware. Like, this isn't going to be all fantastic for you. And then he says, and then he points Samuel to a king to anoint. But that first king does not work out. That king's name is Saul. And Saul himself only operates on the basis of what his own eyes can see, on the basis of what he can reason through himself, what he can understand, the way things look like in front of him. And even when God gives him very specific instructions through the prophet Samuel, he still doesn't trust that Samuel knows what he's talking about, that Samuel is seeing something that God is showing him, he just trusts what his own eyes can see. In short, he has no faith. We've been talking about faith since the beginning of Lent. We've talked about Abraham and how Abraham stepped out in faith to go somewhere that he didn't even know where he was going just because God said to. And faith is necessary for a relationship with God, not just because we can't see God, but because we can't see what God sees. And sometimes he asks us to do stuff that seems crazy from our vantage point, because we don't have the whole picture. So as an example, Abraham asks him, he asks him to uproot his whole family and start traveling without knowing where he's going. That took faith. Or like Moses, he asks him to smack a rock with a stick so water can come out for thousands of people to drink. That doesn't seem like something you would just assume would happen. Um, that takes faith. Or, like in our story today, go and anoint a king when you already anointed a king and that first king is still alive. That takes some faith. <laughs> That's treason, right? Except, Saul was offered the chance himself to radically trust in God during battle a couple of times, and he blew it every single time. He didn't trust God to fulfill his word. He didn't trust that God knew better than he did. And so God is saying, I will tell the story through someone else. And he asks Samuel to do something that looks like treason, except Saul has already committed treason because God is still the real king of Israel. God tells Samuel, listen, I know you, you didn't want a king, and then I told you to anoint this guy, and now you're personally invested, but you got to stop grieving for this guy. First of all, he's still alive, but he's absolutely faithless. He is not the person that I can use in this position. So there's this guy that no one's ever heard of in a little tiny town called Bethlehem. The guy's name is Jesse. He has a bunch of sons. I want you to go anoint one of them to be king instead of Saul. And Samuel is like, you do know that if I do that, Saul's going to kill me, right? Samuel is seeing on a very reasonable human level, that he is being asked to commit treason, and that could end in his death. Makes sense 
absolutely true. We actually find out later that Saul is kind of homicidal, and um, when he does find out that there's another king that's been anointed, he's not happy about it, and a whole bunch of drama ensues, but we're not there yet. Um, on a human level, what we can see is pretty convincing. So I don't think any of us should beat ourselves up when we have trouble seeing forward to what God is asking us to do. Also, God gave us brains. It's important to use them. God works through our experience. It's important to take that into account. And God gives us the ability to make good decisions, sometimes on the fly. But as we follow Jesus, we learn more and more also to factor in faith. And when we have learned to hear God's voice well, even if we don't hear it with our ears like Samuel, and when God gives us a clear command, it will almost always require us to move beyond logic and experience to the realm of faith, to see past the surface of things. God already knows that Samuel has faith. So he knows that Samuel's going to do what he says, even though Samuel is nervous about doing it quite reasonably. And so God gives him a cover. He says, go take a calf with you as you go to Bethlehem and say, we're going to do a community sacrifice here, and, and then while you're doing that, you can invite Jesse and his sons, make sure that they're there, and then you can do the anointing thing. Is God telling Samuel to lie? Bending the truth? Paul says no. Why not? Well, that's true. Yeah, exactly. It's not the whole story, but the sacrifice is literally an, another thing that's happening on one level with something else happening that not everyone can see on the other level. The sacrifice is for real. Samuel is a man of God, and he is known for traveling around to the different villages and offering sacrifices, and that's what he's doing, and it's a real sacrifice. It's not just a, a sham. But there is something else going on that is part of God's plan, that is part of God's agenda under the surface, and the people that need to know about that are going to know about it. Not everybody needs to know about it right now. So... Um, back to the whole dating trauma. I had a friend in my 30s, and she got into a relationship with an older man, and it was pretty complicated, and they ended up getting pregnant, and then they had a messy breakup. And then, a little later, she ended up marrying a guy who looked so much like her ex that all of us were like, huh. <laughs> They're still happily married. It ended up working out. But that kind of thing doesn't always work out, right? So it kind of seems like at the beginning of this, when Samuel gets to Bethlehem and he brings the calf and he tells the elders, yes, I'm coming in peace, even though maybe the results could end up not being super peaceful later. Um, I'm coming in peace, and uh, he makes sure that Jesse and his sons are there, and he sees the first son, Eliab, and he's like, oh, definitely. This guy, is he's the oldest, he's got some authority, he's clearly the one that needs to be in charge, he's good looking, he looks like he could 
lead an army and, and all these things. Um, he is doing this partly because that's a normal human response. You want to find some guy that's going to be, if you're looking for a king, you want to find a guy that seems like king material. But also, this is exactly what Saul was like, too. And Samuel's kind of like, well, Saul didn't work out, but this guy is kind of like him, and maybe this guy will work out. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Even Samuel, all on his own, couldn't see what was in Eliab's heart or see that that wasn't the guy that God had chosen this time. Then, so if he, but he hears God. God tells him, nope, that's not the one. Then what happens? They go to the next one, and the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one, and none of them are there, and so... And Samuel's like, okay, so God told me to anoint one of this guy's sons, and I've just been through seven of them, and God is saying no to all of them. Another step of faith, right? Do you have any more sons? There's a lot of sons. You got any more? <laughs> oh, yeah, the, the youngest one. He's taking care of the sheep. We didn't think he needed to be here. Well, go get him. We're not going to finish this ceremony today until he shows up. And it turns out that David, who the text says is not that bad looking either, he's just the youngest, and you wouldn't think of him as being the person. Um, David shows up, and David is the one that God has chosen to be king. Okay, some of you know that King David is not my favorite person. Um, I have a little trouble with King David. I do not have trouble with the idea that God saw right through Eliab's impressive physical appearance and chose the youngest, most unlikely person. God does this all the time, from Genesis chapter 4 all the way through the whole Bible. God is always choosing the most unlikely person to lead his people. The youngest, or the poorest, or the or the woman, or God is always doing that. I don't have any problem with that idea. The thing that I struggle with is, if God looks at the heart, and the Bible tells us a few times that David was a man after God's own heart, well, David was kind of messed up. He did one complicated, very famous, major sin, which he repented for, but there's a whole lot of other stories about him where he's kind of sketchy. And he's and God himself calls him a man of blood. He's a man of war. He doesn't want David to build the temple because he's violent. Um, there, there's a whole lot of self-interest in there. I find David very complicated. And, it, and I, don't, I don't care that he's complicated. Everybody's complicated. But the fact that the Bible says over and over again that this complicated, messed up guy who did really terrible things to some people, um, that he is a man after God's own heart. Because if that's true, then what does it say about God's heart? This is the thing that bothers me. But as I was working on this passage, I realized what it says about God's heart. It says that God's heart, God himself, sees beyond 
not only the surface of appearance, not only what we can see with our physical eyes, but also beyond, even beyond the surface of our actions. Let's be clear. Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that means that what's really inside us is what is going to come out through our words or through our actions or, or some way. So David's heart was clearly not perfect. But even beyond our actions, there's something else at the core. Deeper than our actions, deeper than our words. And God can see even that. God can see whether or not we're the type of person who can receive a different perspective from him by faith. He can see whether we're the type of person who is going to trust him. Because no matter how David would struggle to be a good husband or a good father or a good man, he had more faith in the one true God, more trust in the one true God than Saul ever had. He had faith that in the end, he couldn't operate on his own. David had this faith. David had faith that he had to rely utterly on the grace of God and the mercy of God. And he knew, like the psalm that Kathleen read, that we, that's very familiar, Psalm 23, he knew that with God shepherding him, his soul, unlike Saul's very troubled soul, could find rest, even when he ended up stumbling into the valley of the shadow of death time or two. He knew that he would one day see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living because as he walked with God, he too began to learn to see below the surface. I think it's really comforting. Two things about this story are really comforting. The first thing is that it's really comforting that even when I can't see the way God sees, God understands that and he helps me to do that when I turn to him and ask. And also, that God, if God could see below the surface of David's appearance and David's youth and even David's bad behavior, then I can be sure that God can also see beneath my surfaces, my appearance, my gender, my bad behavior or bad attitudes, and make me a person after his heart, too. And maybe I already am. And if he can do that with me, he can also do that with all of you. And with our church as a whole. I believe that we are kind of like David. We're the little church in the little town that everybody forgot about. And God loves us. And we are becoming more and more a people after God's heart. So let's be encouraged, and let's pray that he'll help us to see more and more the way he sees, and live after his heart. Lord God, we thank you that you see us better than we see ourselves, and better than we see each other, and that you love us. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and mercy. Help us to live more and more in that way by faith by trust in you, by your grace, in Jesus' name.